ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. The Greens have found a brand as well, beyond just the environmental persona that everyone's known about for so long, this idea that they are there for renters and there for those uh, on the outers of the housing market can be really fertile ground. I look forward to leading a government that makes Australians proud. This election didn't just change a government, it was a green slide. Safe Liberal seat. We need to go back to our values, our principles, look closely at what has happened. Our policies will be squarely aimed at the forgotten Australians in the suburbs across regional Australia. Hello and welcome to The Party Room. I'm Patricia Carvellis, the host of RM Breakfast and Q&A, joining you from Wurundjeri Country in Melbourne. And I'm David Spears, National Political Lead at the ABC, host of Insiders, keeping the seat warm for Fran Kelly. I'm on Ngunnawal country in Canberra. PK, look, we know housing has been one of the dominant issues across, well, politics and the community, really, for uh, for quite a while, building and building. It's been the major sticking point between Labor and the Greens. The government's had all sorts of difficulty passing its signature housing legislation that it promised at the election. This is the, the $10 billion Housing Australia Future Fund. This week, the stalemate between the two parties finally came to an end just after the PM hopped off the plane uh, after his whirlwind regional trip. The Greens have confirmed they will back the legislation. In fact, by the time you listen to this, it should have passed uh, through the uh, through both houses. Um, after the government tipped in an extra billion dollars for uh, public housing to be spent, Charles Croucher, chief political editor at uh, Nine, will be joining us to discuss... Who is the real winner here? But without, you know, too many spoilers here, PK, the government really would be the happiest, wouldn't they, with this outcome? I reckon. I mean, at the end of the day, they were able to get the numbers to pass a signature piece of legislation, and that is ultimately a huge win. But as you say, we will talk about it a little later. Many of those who were urging the Greens to support this bill for months, I've got to say, though, might be needing to eat a bit of perhaps humble pie because the Greens were able to get more from the government, sure, not all of their objectives, but more from the government than they started with. Without the pressure, they wouldn't have got, I mean, the government wouldn't have put as much on the table as they did, right? Absolutely. So there was the extra $2 billion that the states and territories were given in that kind of deal that the Prime Minister did. And I, you know, sure the Prime Minister will say to you and say to everyone that it was their idea with the, the states and territories. But we all know it came amid a lot of political pressure from the Greens and this issue becoming a signature issue. And then that extra billion dollars right at the end for community and social housing. Here's Adam Band. Under our pressure, since the legislation was first tabled, we've now secured $3 billion, $2 billion that's already in state government coffers and additional billion dollars today to be spent on public and community housing. And that's money that's available this year, not in the future, not dependent on um, whether a gamble on the stock market pays off. And that's the Greens leader, Adam Bant. David, they didn't get in what they wanted on rents and rent freezes, but... Yeah, it's enough of a win for them to kind of have something to sell, right? Yeah, I mean, this is how the sausage is made, right? This is how politics is done. At some point, pragmatism had to kick in. The Greens ended this whole debate demanding $5 billion a year be spent. They watered that down, asking for $2.5 billion. In the end, you've, you've explained what they walked away with. But on renters, this was what really 
you know, was the main focus and they haven't got the rent freeze and the rent caps that they were demanding. And I think that idea really died at that recent National Cabinet meeting when the Premiers and Chief Ministers, even Dan Andrews, who had a look at it, all said, no, we're not, we're not going down that path. And I think from that point, there was no way the Commonwealth could force the states to do it. So, you know, the, the Greens ultimately had to cut a deal. Uh, and that's what they've done. Look, they'll keep up the fight, they say, for renters. They want to be the party of renters. A third of Australians live in rental accommodation. They want to lock in all those votes. So yes, they'll keep up the pressure where they can. I just don't know if they'll have the opportunity to push as hard as they did on this bill in particular. But they put that you know flag in the sand, haven't they, to say we are the party of renters. Yeah, and a third of the population are renters, and so that means at the next election, renters are a fierce force of voters to deal with and reckon with. And and that does, I think, give them a really strong uh, position as we get into that election cycle. And believe me, that's going to happen faster than you think, guys. I don't know if you're ready for it, but it's you, you watch next year will be in a sort of different framework. Look, I want to change the topic, David, and have a bit of a meaty conversation with you about the referendum on the proposed Indigenous mm. voice to Parliament. It's drawing near. It's about a month away now. Campaigning from both sides has really ramped up. This week, things took, I think, what is fair to say is a pretty ugly turn. We got Mm. a a look inside the no campaign strategy. The nine papers first reported that in a training session, campaign volunteers with leading no group Fair Australia were instructed, instructed not to introduce themselves as working for the no campaign and were told to use emotive language to raise fear and doubt. Now the strategy hinges around converting so-called soft voters, and that's for both sides, right, people who are not yet locked in. That makes sense. You want to swing those votes with calls to raise, for instance, concerns that First Nations people fight for financial compensation or changing Australia Day, cancelling Australia Day, which is another kind of uh, symbolic thing. David, it was quite startling, really, to see a training for a leading campaign body which was based on lies. Well, yeah, I mean, the, the nine papers you know, revealed that, you know, that, that training message for no campaign volunteers. It's also late in the week revealed what some on the yes side are training their volunteers to say. Uh, it points to Victorian Trades Hall Council uh, key messages document where its volunteers are being urged to call out the no side for punching down on Indigenous Australians, uh, to suggest that they're vilifying Aboriginal people uh, and so on. Look, I, in, in some ways, this is kind of looking at what goes on in political campaigning. A lot of it is negative. A lot of it is about really attacking the other side rather than promoting the merits of your own side. I don't think that's anything new in political campaigning. Um, You don't want it splashed on the front page of the newspaper, what those tactics are. Um, But it's it's pretty obvious when you look at certainly some of the no campaign stuff that, yes, it is based on fear and demands for all sorts of detail. And it is a contrast to what the yes side is largely about. You hear Noel Pearson talking about love a lot, but on the yes side, look, you know, there are negative messages too about trying to suggest the other side are up to up to no good and uh, and even racist. Yeah, that's right. And so let's go to this because this week we saw prominent Indigenous academic and co-chair of that senior design group on The Voice, Marcia Langton, uh, quoted firstly in the Bunbury paper and then in the Australian newspaper as calling no voters racist and stupid. They then had to even fix their headline because 
if you listen to it, she talked about the no campaign and she spoke to me, David, and she she backed in that she thinks that the no campaign's argument is based on racism and stupidity. She mm. didn't shy away from that as a campaign. It does show, though, just how everything now that comes out of any mouth of any campaigner will be scrutinised at a sort of next level. That's what I thought. And I suspect, David, there will be more and more because Aboriginal people, not just Marcia Langton, have spoken many times and called out racism and sometimes made generalisations about racism based on their lived experience. And it seems like this is now part of the campaign. Yeah, and that's important context, I think, because, you know, I certainly don't want to you know, judge or weigh in on that, that lived experience of racism that someone like Marcia Langton has, has lived with her, her, her whole life. And you're right, comments that she's made over the years will be dug up. Uh, we saw this with Thomas Mayo as well. But I do think these comments this week have really been problematic for the government and the Yes campaign because, you know, she was misquoted. You're right. She wasn't saying all no voters are racist or stupid, but she was saying the no campaign arguments are, are based in racism and sheer, or st- sheer stupidity. It became central to the debate this week in Parliament and you could see the government's awkwardness on this, not wanting to condemn or criticise Marcia Langton, calling for more respectful debate all round. But this is the sort of language that the Prime Minister and even the likes of Noel Pearson uh, have been very careful to step around, suggesting that the other side is fuelled by racism. That's not something they're, they're wanting to open up, uh, that, that can of worms. No, and, and there's no doubt it wasn't helpful for the Yes campaign this week. Absolutely you are correct because their whole thing is happy, love, getting people to feel good about this, not calling anyone a racist, right? When you get a whole bunch of Aboriginal people who have intergenerational trauma and a lifetime of racism they've experienced, if you're going to go through everything they say, I reckon you're going to find lots of these sorts of comments. Mm. That's what I'm saying. So if we're going down that road, you're going to find more. Yeah, I suspect one of the difficulties for the Prime Minister in in this whole area of the debate is what happens if Australians do vote no uh, and and vote no by a significant margin, as some of the polls suggest at the moment uh, might happen. He certainly doesn't want to be a Prime Minister who's suggesting that the majority of Australians are racist. So he's he's very careful uh, around all of this. And of course, right now, for the next month, he's still trying to win them over and still expressing confidence that can that can be done. So he doesn't want to be criticising them at all. He wants to be appealing uh, to them to join a moment of unity, as he puts it, and uh, and vote for this uh, recognition and this voice. But in terms of the political back and forth, Marcia Langton's comments were kind of the spark for a lot of this. But then we really saw things ratchet up between the two sides in the final days of, of Parliament, um, because this is the final sitting week before the referendum vote on October 14. You, you had uh, ministers lining up to get stuck into Peter Dutton, calling him the chief propagandist for misinformation and disinformation. I mean, everyone from the Attorney General to the Treasurer, Jim Chalmers, <laughs> weighed in on this. Uh, Peter Dutton, um, you know, a- a- accusing the Prime Minister of dividing the nation. So it got pretty willing uh, there for a while, didn't it? Oh, yeah. I mean, that's that's the thing. Things were so heated this week in, in the parliamentary theatre. You and really... that doesn't help the yes case, I think, bottom line. No, right? no, no, it doesn't. You are absolutely correct on the maths of this thing. The, the yes campaign, all of the work is on them. Getting a referendum up for anyone is hard, let alone when you're behind in the polls, you've got the double majority, the majority of the country, majority of states, and so mm. any distraction or anything 
is is going to be detrimental at this point for them. Absolutely. Yeah, uh, I think in, in simple terms, um, you know, the yes side and the Prime Minister want to present this as a moment of unity, right? Australians can come together around this recognition and this voice. For the opposition, it's all about trying to really muddy this process and moments that show uh, divisiveness, division, um, and a bit of yelling and screaming is going to turn people off the whole concept. I think that's the that's the thinking here. So weeks where they can drag this down into the mud um, are going to help the no campaign. That's why the government's so keen to get away from Parliament after this week, back into the community to try and turn this campaign around. Yeah. Well... Th- a month left, but it's going to be outside now of the political theatre. That's, I think, helpful for the Yes campaign, though, isn't it, David? Yes, I, I agree. I think it's certainly better than when they're in Parliament. But I thought their first week of the campaign, the launch, the ad from John Farnham, all of that was a strong week for them. It didn't help in the polls much. Polls are still sinking. I think the best hope they've got is that a lot of people just really haven't paid attention to this, aren't going to be swayed by what's going on in Parliament this week with Marcia Langton and so on. They're really only going to look at this in the last couple of weeks or even the last couple of days before they go into the ballot box. That's the best hope for the Yes campaign is really getting that message across in the final, final part of this whole campaign. Yep. A month is a long time in politics, that's for sure. David, should we bring in our guest? Let's do it. Charles Croucher is Chief Political Editor at Nine and our guest in the party room. Welcome, Charles. Great to be here. Charles, uh, great to have a chat with you. Uh, PK and I touched on earlier the Greens Labor mm. deal now and housing. A deal done. Uh, legislation, uh, by the time people hear this, will have passed through the Parliament. Uh, I, I suggested the government was probably the uh, the biggest winner of the two here. What What do you reckon? Well, it's possible you can both be winners, right? I think yeah. it's the, the general Everyone's consensus. Everyone's a winner, yeah. baby. <laughs> exactly. Going, uh, going. This is the most important issue to Australians. We've had yeah. focus groups, be in private, public. The parties will all tell you this. Cost of living is the number one issue, and housing for so many is the number one impact on cost of living. So to get a result, to end this stalemate in the Senate, it's a great sign for the government as well. The Greens have found a brand as well, beyond just the environmental um, persona that everyone's known about for so long, this idea that they are there for renters and there for those uh, on the outers of the housing market can be really fertile ground. What have they got for renters? Well, nothing so far. I mean, there's there's some concessions in uh, a nationalising of um, the approach to renting through National Cabinet that was agreed to up in Brisbane. Nothing so far, which gives them ground to then, you know... Keep pushing. Keep pushing, right? Darwin used to say, you cast into the colour change because that's where the fish are. Well, they're going where the voters are. And And they've said that the the next uh, housing legislation, which is the shared equity... Yeah, the first homeowners promise. When they bring that up, they'll keep pushing. So what, what do we expect there? They'll say, come back to the rent freeze idea? Let's go around this again. Yeah, that's it. And even <laughs> oh, like, God. even starting to target individual seats. They're not just saying this is where the whole party's going, but they've said here are half a dozen seats, yeah. mostly across um, Victoria and, and Brisbane, uh, Melbourne and Brisbane, where they can see gains to be made in the future. McNamara, Lily, Morton, Cooper, Richmond. So Richmond's northern New South Wales. You know, Lily, Annika Wells, a cabinet minister yeah. there, McNamara. Um, Labor's nervous Josh about Burns. This. Labor's nervous that, about Yeah, that. one that went at the state level. It was really mm. close. Like some, they would be nervous, and they should yeah. be. But it's it's fighting seats between Labor and Greens and sort of ignoring the fact that the Liberal Party and the LNP exist out there as well in the cities, which is an indication of why I think both parties have won here. They've managed to make this debate about them 
and they're the ones at the table that are doing all this discussion on the most important issue, don't mm. forget, to voters. Mm. And the old adage that if you're not at the table, you're on the menu, that's kind of where the mm. LNP is left through all of this debate so far. I think both parties might be looking at some kind of policy moving forward. Yeah, and, and while the Greens uh, conceded uh, without a, a direct win for renters, although I did, you know, did hear them argue that they're increasing supply and that will help renters, and I thought, oh, I've heard that argument before. <laughs> um, <laughs> they were quick to reconfirm their position as the party of renters. As you say, that will be part of the battle, suggesting that now this goes to the election. Here they are. Over the next few months, we are going to use every opportunity we have to push the government into freezing and capping rent increases. And if it takes them losing the votes of hundreds of thousands, if not millions of renters, for them to realise they can't ignore the one third of this country that rents, then so be it. Tell us what you really think yeah. Max yeah. Chamberlain made pick up on, there. Pick yeah. up on this because I, I just wanted what you both think about where this leaves the actual principle of a rent freeze. Uh, sure, the Greens are saying they're going to keep pursuing this next time legislation comes up, they'll do this again and keep pushing. But everyone from Philip Lowe down say this is, this is not workable. It's actually going to drive up rents in the long run. Has it been exposed, do you think, as a populist idea that really isn't going to work? Or is it still something that, that the Greens can legitimately argue is is achievable? Whether it has to work or not is sort of one for the future for the Greens. They mm. think this is, and you heard there, I mean, Max Chandler-Mather said that the fight's just getting started. Mm. And he identified the third of the country that is voting. That's a, a mm. huge chunk mm. of voters that I, I don't think the Greens three years ago, six years ago, nine years ago would have been thinking we can go after a third of the country. No, I, look, I, th yeah. I think that's true. The, the politics is there for yeah. them. But I don't know, PK, did they win this policy argument? Did they... It, it just feels like every economist said this is dumb. Mm. This is really not going to help. It's going to make things worse. No, I don't think they won the, the, the policy argument because I think largely the experts say it won't work. But... It's not all just winning policy arguments, as you guys know. <laughs> they won the emotional argument. And, yeah. uh, you know, there was this f fantastic package on AM, for instance, where they spoke to lots of different renters in Brisbane who just explained how hard things were. And basically they, they want to freeze. Oh, because, absolutely. No, so, absolutely. And that matters because yeah. whether it works or not is, is kind of irrelevant. Like, I, I think people do vote from the heart and experience, yep. not just, well, oh, I'm worried about supply and investors might pull out. I mean, a renter's mm -hmm. not going to think, oh, the investors, mum and dad investors might not want to invest and that's going to be a problem for my future renting. They're going to think, can I not have another whopping increase next year? And that's that's where the politics is yeah, here. I, look, I, yeah. I, I do think it matters, though, whether a policy can actually achieve Oh, it achieve does matter, you, but, you but there's politics achieve. too. Um, yeah. What about Labor? You know, that, that talk of a double dissolution election over this, which I never think uh, anyone ever took too seriously, but that's now gone. The PM, if he wants a trigger, I'll have to look elsewhere. Go find somewhere else. And nothing has quite the same appeal as this, right? We, you know, the, the idea mm. that houses are going to be built. And that's a challenge in itself, mm. the actual structural building those houses, particularly when you look at it. 30,000 is, is hard enough for social and affordable housing. But when you build that into a 1.2, 1.3 million home mm. dwelling target that the National Cabinet's agreed to. The master builders say it can be done. There's this downturn in private um, investment and approvals because of interest rates and cost of living. So fill that gap for the next few years. But beyond that, you know, if there's 17 and 18-year-olds out there listening wanting a career, construction's yeah. the way to go. There's some, some big projects coming up and a lot of money yeah. to be made there for them as well. Now, Qantas, just when you thought things couldn't get any worse, yeah. <laughs> the airline, the High Court has delivered them yet another blow, finally. 
finding or confirming that they're sacking of nearly 1,700 workers uh, during the height of the COVID pandemic in 2020 was illegal. Now, this was just the, the latest uh, setback for Qantas. We've got the ACCC after them in the federal court for selling tickets for uh, flights that had already been cancelled. You've got the, uh, the the big question marks over the huge uh, golden parachute um, bonus for Alan Joyce, who's already stood down now as, as chief executive. But I think what was interesting is the government's been on the back foot over its support for Qantas for a couple of weeks now. This seemed to have given... Oh, they loved this moment. Yeah, gave them a moment. Why did this give the, the, the government a moment to you know, turn the tables on the coalition over this? Well, this has sort of all happened on the coalition's watch, largely. This was back yeah. in 2000 when this happened. And at the time, particularly Tony Sheldon, the senator who has been right at the front line of this, not just in Parliament but outside of Parliament, his yeah. union days as well, it was very aggressive in the questioning of the then Workplace Relations and Attorney-General Michaelia Cash. And she was, amongst other things, fairly open to let the market decide what's going on and businesses be business, and that's where it's come back. Now, whether enough time has passed that the coalition can sort of distance themselves from them, timing is always everything with these stories, and given the last month of an unrelated story with Qantas, whether that still muddies the waters enough that it, it's, it sticks to the, the Prime Minister a little bit as well, I think this is a, a good circuit break-in for them because they can be aggressively pro the TWU, aggressively pro those workers, and in this circumstance, aggressively anti-Qantas. Aggressively anti-Qantas. I love that term because they got to muscle up and then talk about history, didn't they, and say, we stood up for workers then and the coalition didn't and, uh, you know, Michaelia Cash did this at this time and you saw it all play out. The other sort of adjacent issue, which I think is a bit of theatre sometimes, but it does play into a little bit of the the political class being too close to Qantas more generally is these... This ongoing thing about these chairman's lounge access. Mm. Talk me mm. through this. The Greens, for instance, Max Chandler Mather is one of the only MPs, I think, who rejected an invitation to be, uh, in, you know, a member of the lounge. 70% of voters think access to this exclusive club is unacceptable for parliamentarians. Like, is this, is this kind of a problem for them? Perception wise, yes. And I'm, I'm not sure. A club sandwich and some sparkling wine is enough to move most politicians. Oh, you get like, some good stuff in there. You, you do, but I, yes. I'm just I'm just not sure that's enough though to just sway a politician. Yeah. And I think this is a real fringe sort of side issue that brings everyone down. This idea yeah. that that there is this murky underworld of politicians and lobbyists and the big companies that isn't actually representative of the truth. And I think it sort of just disenfranchises everyone. It makes everyone feel I trust, think, trust yeah, what do you think, the parliament I think, No, I think that's a good point. And uh, Samantha Maiden, for instance, the other day, and I think it was a good story, um, revealed that all the High Court judges get this membership, right? Mm. And then they handed this judgment yeah, down, which was not in uh, Qantas's favour. So I think that goes to the point you were just making, doesn't it, Charles? I mean, they clearly were not bought by their, their chairman's lounge membership, right? Yeah. It does. And more to the point, and more practical side of things, if the Prime Minister is travelling somewhere, are we going to have him sitting out in the, in, in the concourse? Well, he gets his own plane, yeah, uh, to, to be fair. But look, I, I, it is interesting, though, because politicians are so obsessed by perception, right? They'll go out of their way yeah, to Instagram a photo of themselves with real people or whatever it is. Uh, <laughs> but that, that club sandwich and the nice champagne, mm. um, they're, not, they're not easily giving that up. <laughs> yeah, and I've um, never seen them Instagram a picture of it. <laughs> Imagine, That's a good point. Imagine, yeah, the mushrooms on toast were delicious this morning. Yeah, in the exactly. It's a 
effective line of attack, particularly for those politicians that have rejected it, because you can. Yeah, stand but there's not a bit many. Higher. To Pico's point, no. Max is Max right. the only one. I, <laughs> I did see Andrew Wilkie and um, Allegra Spender said, "Well, they can revoke it if they want." It's a little bit different to saying, yeah, not "I'm going to hand it back." Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I think. Look, let's change the topic if we can to yes. another thing that happened this week. And Charles, last week the government introduced its next tranche of industrial relations reforms. They were hoping to get it passed quickly, but it has been delayed now pending a Senate inquiry into the Mm. bill. The crossbencher, David Pocock, has called for the uncontroversial parts of the bill to be split from the rest of the bill so they can be passed this year. And the Coalition and Crossbench Senator Jackie Lambie have backed that suggestion. In fact, Jackie Lambie told me on RM Breakfast that the Workplace Relations Minister was using elements like banning discrimination against employees, experiencing things like domestic violence as a bargaining chip, and that she wants to call it out. Here she is. This is so important. PTSD and domestic and violence and things like that are so important to you. Then remove them out of the bill, and we can get this done this year, and that can start on the 1st of January, not the 1st of July next year. Jackie Lambie, uh, they're talking to PK. Charles, what do you think? Labor's not about to split the bill for the crossbench, are they? I wouldn't think so, given the enormity of what's in the bill. And um, you know, even hearing today, Michelle O'Neill talk about it. She was speaking about the need for, you know, how do you elevate one element above the rest when you talk yeah. about things like, um, you know, industrial manslaughter and those kind of things being prevented as well, or wage mm. theft. You know, they, these have consequences. The fact that it's all being put through to a committee to be looked at, to be examined, as the House Review is meant to do. We'll delay that. Until next year. Yeah. I think Jackie Lampy might be on a winner here, though, Mm. because they are important things. And, you know, Jackie gets fired up over a lot of things, but I don't think I've ever seen her as fired up as she is about this. And when she picks something, it's, you know, usually on the grounds of pretty strong public support for the, the point that she picks. Look, governments do this, though. They roll up into one big bill, things that are going to be more popular than other things, right? And they put the more unpopular things in there and and basically hold hostage the the popular things. I think the the tax cuts, stage one, two and three tax cuts are a good example Mm -hmm. of that under the previous government, right, PK? I mean, if they'd split that and just put the stage three tax cuts up for a vote, good luck. It's, it's about putting it all together and saying, well, you know, you're holding up all these good things if you don't vote for it. So I don't see Labor splitting this because then good luck getting the, the more difficult elements of this IR Well, let's be through. honest. I don't think they will. I yeah. don't know how they could get the numbers if they if they just split off the easy parts. I mean, that's why governments do this. And the, the example you just gave, David, was excellent on stage three yeah. tax cuts. Can you imagine? We're having very different discussions about tax right now. I mean, At least, this, yeah. is, this no, is pretty exactly. standard government practice. I understand why she's angry about it, though. It yeah. must be frustrating for crossbenchers. Uh, at least they're not saying no, right, uh, to, to the whole bill. Um, yes, they pushed this out a lot longer than the government would like. It's, it's They're not going to report back till February. But Pocock, Lambie and so on, they're not opposing outright everything that's in there. So that, that gives the government some hope, I guess. Lots of hope. But look, it, it's also important to realise the issues they're talking about here, as Jackie said, you know, PTSD, uh, simplifying compensation for that, making life easier for yeah. those that are struggling, bringing fireys and ambos and particularly the AFP who have a terrible track record when yeah. it comes to some of the officers after that mental health. It's really underreported at the moment. Like, that's important, bringing them in line. Uh, agency control over silica and, and then family and domestic violence. It's sort of... You know, there's nothing there that I think anyone would reasonably shirk at. So mm. if it can be brought forward six months, it's going to save people and save lives. Is it? She's got a strong argument. Now, whether Senator Lambie has enough, is willing to stand up and say, we're not passing the rest unless you do this, that would, you know, you're going to be all or nothing, which is a big risk too. So, Charles, there's no parliament until the voice uh, has been determined. And so you can't wait to see the back of them, right? Mm. <laughs> 
Well, I mean, it's probably yeah. it's probably good for the voice as well that it gets out of politics. Yeah. And gets out to people that actually are going to vote on this and, and going to count because... Uh, I think all we've heard is shouting. Yeah, so it's much been, shouting. And this is exactly the campaign that I think the Prime Minister didn't want to have, right? The idea was for it not to be political and for it to be a unifying event. Now, the idea of any vote that is unifying, particularly in this day and age, is difficult. You know, short of the Matildas, I'm not sure there's anything that has unified the nation. You know, Remember those days. I know. It feels so long ago. Oh, I feel like you could bring have a vote. the Matildas back. <laughs> you could have a vote on, you know, getting kicked in the shins or going to ice cream and, and it'd be still 80-20 because there'd be people against big ice cream. But uh, look, look, this is a, it's a, a difficult month ahead and it's going to be a lot about the country as to where this debate goes. Hopefully not having the magnifying glass on Canberra will calm things a little, mm. not having everyone in the same room and then... It just becomes about the actual vote itself and, and, you know, that's now a month away and unless something dramatic changes or dramatic happens, it's heading for a a month of reckoning after that as well. Mm. We will see. We will see. Charles Croucher, great to talk to you. Thanks for joining us in the party room. Anytime. Thanks, Charles. We'll move to questions without notice. We'll give the call to the Leader of the Opposition. Thank you very much, uh, Mr Speaker. My question is to the Prime Minister. Order. The bells are ringing. That means it's time for our question time. Um, it's a li- little less rowdy than the question times I've seen this week in Parliament. And this one's from Christopher. The latest Resolve strategic poll for the referendum showed that support among Labor voters has fallen to 60%, down from 75% in April. With Labor holding 36% of the primary vote, this means that theoretically around 14% of Australian voters would vote for Labor, but not for The Voice. Improving support for the voice amongst this group of voters would seem to be the most logical way to put the yes case in better contention to win. And what does it say about the Prime Minister's influence and standing should the referendum end up failing? Thanks. David. So there's a couple of parts to that, uh, and it is a really interesting question, and thank you, Christopher, for sending it in. Look, what would a defeat mean for the standing of the Prime Minister? Clearly, he'd take a knock, he'd take a blow. Uh, Would it be fatal? No, I doubt it. I think he could absolutely recover from this, and the, the history of referenda in Australia show us that you can quite often... Uh, in fact, it might even be more often than not, lose a referendum, then go on to win the following election. Don't forget there are dangers for Peter Dutton in this whole process of, yes, he might succeed at the referendum in getting the no vote up, but become very tarnished in the negative approach in the image in people's minds of his his you know style of leadership uh, being too negative. You know, Bob Hawke lost referendums, kept on winning elections. So, you know, just bear that in mind. But it clearly is bringing down Labor's support in the polls at the moment. The Prime Minister's standing as well. He's still well ahead of Peter Dutton and the Liberals, but it is having an impact. What you'll see after the referendum, if it goes down, is the government being very busy on a lot of fronts. Within days, the PM will be over in Washington for a state visit. There'll be, in the final months of the year, you know, changes on the NDIS, environmental law reform, uh, employment white paper. They've got a stack of stuff sitting in the top drawer ready to roll out after this referendum to show that they've got a lot more on their agenda. Yeah, David is dead right there, and I love that history lesson, David, about Prime Ministers bouncing back after potential defeats, although, you know, we don't know how this will end, although all the public polling uh, showing that it's likely to be defeated. The thing is, though, right, I do think he's going to take a personal knock. I think I'm sure he knows that. He already is. But I do think he'll rebound as well, uh, and they can then focus on the other issues. I, I put this out there. Where does that leave Aboriginal people, though? Because mm. that's another question. That's a yeah. That that is a big meaty one because I think for the government they will want to move on, but for the most impoverished 
people in the country, this will be really difficult, win or lose, because... Yeah, Yeah, I agree. And what we don't know is what the government, what Albanese would do to address Indigenous disadvantage. Would he legislate a voice? He's been indicating maybe not if there's an overwhelming rejection of putting it in the Constitution. What would he do to empower and listen to the the feedback of Indigenous people, which is what this is all about? That's really unclear right now. Very unclear. Keep sending your questions in because we love getting them. We're especially fond, as we say, of the voice notes, which you can email to thepartyroom at abc.net.au. And remember to follow The Party Room on the ABC Listen app so you never miss an episode. That's it for The Party Room this week. We'll be back in your feeds next week. I'm taking a week off. In fact, you're hosting Q&A next week. I'll be Uh, in the sun hanging out with my kids, but I'll be back with The Party Room the week after, and I know you'll be back soon too, David. Thank you. Always look forward to filling in for you, PK. I'll see you soon. See you, David.